Good morning, Gresham Bible. It's good to be with you today. We're continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Luke, and today we're in chapter 6, verses 27 through 42. Studying this passage lately has increased my love for Jesus and my desire to follow him, and I hope that will be the effect on you as we look at his teaching again today. Here's where we're going. I'm going to call our introduction 2,000 years back, 200 miles down. Then we'll talk about the first section of our passage, love your enemies, that's verses 27 through 36. Then do not judge in verses 37 through 42, and then we'll wrap it up with a conclusion. So I want you to do a little thought experiment with me. Imagine yourself looking down from the International Space Station on the Middle East at the time Jesus is teaching. So we have a bird's eye view in time and space, right? Can you put yourself there? We're looking downward and backward as Jesus launches his plan for world conquest. We know, and he knows, that three years from now, just prior to his departure, the resurrected Jesus will give his inner circle a blueprint for this kingdom plan. The plan is simple, but as we know now, incredibly effective. Reproduce yourselves. Make disciples who make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey Jesus' commands. This reproductive principle is actually stated by Jesus in verse 40 of our passage today. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Recall that in last week's message, we saw Jesus' selection of the 12 disciples. So we could say that this Sermon on the Plain is their inaugural training event. They are not simply part of the audience any longer. They are also trainees, observers at the beginning who are learning to be like their teacher and do what he did. Like those first 12, and like all the generations of disciples who came after them, we too are called to be trainees or apprentices, learning to obey Jesus in all things, and in the process, becoming like him and continuing in the reproductive process. Now, let's zoom backwards in time, 2,000 years, and let's drop down 200 miles from the stratosphere to the plain in Israel, where Jesus is teaching a large crowd of people. We know that Jesus summarized the whole Old Testament law in the commands to love God and love people. It's really breathtaking to see when he gets more specific about these two things, that his teaching collides at every point with conventional wisdom and the traditional teaching of the religious experts. It's not that hard to see why he got so much pushback from the Jewish leaders. But what's more personally disturbing is that his teaching challenges our own comfortable assumptions and practices. So here we are with a large crowd of people gathered around Jesus. He has healed many people of diseases and unclean spirits. And then he begins to teach, as we saw last week, blessing four groups of people and pronouncing woe on their counterparts. This week we look at two of Jesus' most well-known commands, yet they are not often taken seriously. Love your enemies is not taken seriously, either because it's considered unrealistic or because people flat out disagree with it. And don't judge is not taken seriously because it's so often misunderstood. It's used to promote a type of politically correct tolerance or to shield oneself from blame or responsibility. So let's just stop and pray for God's help before we read our passage. 
Father, as we listen to Jesus again today, we are reminded that he was full of grace and truth. Let us be open to being challenged by the radical, uncomfortable, inconvenient truths of his commands. And let us be comforted by his grace, reassured that we who were enemies have been made friends and empowered to be like our enemy-loving Savior and our merciful Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the passage now, Luke 6, 27 through 42. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Here's how our passage breaks down. Verses 27 through 36 talk about loving our enemies. We'll talk about what that means and how we can do it. Then verses 37 through 42 talk about not judging. Again, we'll talk about what that means and then how to do it. And then we'll wrap up with a final encouragement. What does love your enemies mean? First, let's remember that Jesus didn't just commission his followers to teach his commands to others. He said, teach them to obey. And as we look further at what he taught, we see that he didn't teach a superficial obedience, an external following of rules like the Pharisees with their 613 Old Testament laws. John Piper makes a good point when he says, you can teach a parrot all of Jesus' commands, but you cannot teach a parrot to observe them. Parrots will not repent and worship Jesus and lay up treasures in heaven, and love their enemies, and go out like sheep in the midst of wolves to herald the kingdom of God. 
I Googled the commands of Jesus and came up with 1,050 commands in 800 different categories. The Pharisee part of me loves that. And of course, that misses the whole point. The word translated love here is the Greek word agape, meaning to show favor or goodwill towards someone, wishing them well, wanting the best for them. Agape specifically means love the undeserving, despite disappointments and rejection. It's love without self-interest, not dependent on whether you like someone or whether they can do something for you. Jesus points out in verses 32 through 34 that natural human love is transactional. We love because we get love back. We lend because we expect repayment. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he was saying something new and startling. This didn't contradict the Old Testament, which forbade revenge and taught that you should assist your enemy if he was in need, but this took enemy love to a whole new level. Keep in mind, too, that in the New Testament times, the word enemy usually referred to personal foes, but it was also used for strangers and foreigners generally. So an enemy can simply be someone you're indifferent to. You don't have active ill will toward them, but you just don't care about any injustice or need or pain they may be experiencing. We might be tempted to push back and say, but Jesus, Surely you don't mean I need to love those crazy conspiracy theorists, that guy who's going to ruin the country if he gets elected in November, those people trying to burn down the federal courthouse, that neighbor who has loud late drinking parties and who does fireworks all night twice a year that freak out my pets, the homeless people I walk past every day or who panhandle, the neighbor with the Black Lives Matter yard sign, my estranged parent, my inflexible, unreasonable, unappreciative boss, my spouse who refuses to change, that loud pink-haired person covered head to foot with tattoos and piercings dressed in outlandish clothes, the gay couple next door, the Muslim family on my street. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Ray Hinton, the Alabama man whose story is told in the movie Just Mercy. Ray was unjustly convicted of murder in 1985 and spent 30 years on death row before his conviction was overturned and he was freed in 2015. A man of deep faith, he says that his mother taught him to love his enemies and to always forgive. Because of that, he says that he has never hated anyone and that he forgave those who put him in prison even when he knew, even when they knew he was not the guilty person. He takes great joy in his freedom, meaning the inner freedom he experiences as one who harbors no hatred or unforgiveness in his heart. What a picture of the teaching of Jesus in this passage. Jesus did not teach love by defining it, but by describing what it does. And he took examples from life in his day. It was not uncommon for Jews in Palestine to encounter occupying Romans who would slap them in the cheek, across the cheek, or take their possessions, or force them to do a task, or insult them with a racial slur. In recent years, the advent of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube's, YouTube and blogs with their comment sections have brought a whole new meaning to the word enemy. You see people, including Christians, treating each other in the most cruel, demeaning, hateful ways, ways they would never behave in face-to-face -face interactions. You've probably heard the saying, 
hurt people hurt people. What we have on social media today is a lot of wounded people wounding other wounded people. We have visually impaired people with logs in their eyes lashing out at other visually impaired people with logs in their eyes. The heart of Jesus' command is that loved enemies love enemies. Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate expression of enemy love. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were his enemies, when we had absolutely nothing to offer him, he reached out in kindness and generosity to meet our deepest need, to be forgiven and reconciled to himself. When we grasp the incredible truth that we are loved enemies, made friends of God through sheer grace, we want to be we want to become like our Father, like our Savior. We want to be loved enemies who in turn love our enemies so that they too can be redeemed. Martin Luther King famously said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. As our heart becomes more and more like the heart of Jesus, our impulse will be one of kindness and generosity toward those we meet guided by wisdom as to what's appropriate for the occasion. But overall, our guiding principle will be a concern for the other person's ultimate well-being, that he or she be reconciled to God and then begin to live in his kingdom. How can we love our enemies? What are some ways that we can do this? After the opening command, love your enemies, we can see that the rest of this passage up through verse 36 explains and illustrates what it means to love our enemies. So in verse 27, it says, to do good to those who hate you. We are to do good to those who hate us because this is what God does. He sustains those who hate him every day because he is patient, not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. In the same way, our good work should be accompanied by the desire for the recipient's ultimate well-being. Christians and Muslims often view one another as enemies. I have two good Muslim friends, one here in my neighborhood and one in the Gambia in West Africa. Generally, their religion would lead them to regard me as an enemy. But in fact, these two friends have great affection for me, because, both because of my sustained personal interest in them and my financial generosity toward them. I talk with my Gambian friend Seku twice a week, and we talk about many things, but we always read and discuss the Gospel of John. And he is coming face to face with the real Jesus, not the human prophet he has been taught about. Seku recently mentioned that his roof was leaking, it's rainy season there, and asked if I might be able to help. He's been out of work since the pandemic started and has never mentioned money in three months, so I was happy to send him some money to help him fix his roof. I also sent my gospel on a napkin video that I had made, which he liked very much and shared it with another Muslim friend. I am able to present truth to Seku, and by the way, he presents his beliefs to me and sends me uh, portions of the Quran for me to read. And I'm also able to directly challenge his beliefs about Muhammad and the Quran because he knows I like him and love him, and I want what's best for him, even though our beliefs at this point don't agree. Bless those who curse you. 
Verse 28, to bless someone in this context means to speak well of them because it's the opposite of cursing a person. Did it ever occur to you that on the cross, Jesus was blessing his enemies when he said, they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. You are really speaking well of your murderers when you give them the benefit of the doubt by saying, they do not know what they are doing. There's a familiar blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, that you can direct toward one who curses you. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Your enemy needs this blessing. And then in verse 28, pray for those who abuse you. You can't genuinely pray for someone you're actively hating. Your heart must aim at the best you can hope for your enemy. What would happen if you were to use the Lord's Prayer as a guide for praying for your enemy? May the person come to see you as holy. May she welcome your kingdom and King Jesus into her life. Please provide for her material needs and guide her toward reconciliation in her personal relationships. Deliver her from sin and its destructive effects for your sake and for your glory. And then verse 29, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. A slap on the cheek was an insult, devaluing another person in that culture. When you offer the other cheek, you are choosing not to be vindictive or to retaliate. You are saying to the one who mistreated you, if you are willing to change, there is an openness here. I'm not withdrawing. I want a relationship by turning the other cheek. I want a relationship on a new footing of both justice and love. You're willing to take a risk, to be vulnerable, to choose to love your enemy in this way. These commands about not retaliating, not withholding your tunic, giving to the one who begs, not expecting repayment, all these things imply that your treasure and your security and your honor are in heaven and not on the earth. You will seethe with rage under these indignities unless Jesus has become radically satisfying for you. In all these commands, Jesus is calling for a change of heart that looks to him and his reward rather than what this world can give you. He's not giving a simple three-step formula for how to love your enemies. He's not talking about behavior modification or New Year's resolutions. You can't do that. You need to have your mind reshaped and your heart softened through a process of being with Jesus, absorbing his teaching, and watching him work like the first disciples did, like they were doing right at this very moment that he was teaching. It's so important that we catch this principle of discipleship. If you remember nothing else today, remember this. It's not about trying. It's about training. Please don't go away from this message telling yourself, I'm going to try to love this difficult person, or I'm going to try not to be judgmental. That's the kind of religious response Jesus was teaching against. You will not succeed, even in an external way, at the radical demands Jesus is making if you simply try. It's like if I told you, okay, you got to run a marathon tomorrow, and you have not exercised in months or years. You can't just do that by trying. But if I tell you, meet me tomorrow morning at the park, 
let's try to run a block together. You say, okay, I think I can manage that. The next day you get out together in the park, you run two blocks. The next day, three blocks. And incrementally, day by day, you train toward that goal of several months down the line, getting to the point where you can run a marathon. In the same way, you cannot just go out and love your enemies by exerting effort. It's not trying. There's effort involved, but it's not just one explosive, one-time effort to obey these kind of commands that Jesus gives us. He wants to change your heart through the power of his spirit and gratitude for the mercy you have experienced so that you become the kind of person who naturally loves enemies, blesses cursors, does good to haters, and forgives abusers. What about admonitions like give to everyone who begs from you and lend expecting nothing in return? We don't have time to unpack these today. For now, let's just note that we shouldn't turn these illustrations of love into absolutes. But on the other hand, we shouldn't water them down to the point that we don't feel challenged by them. These examples illustrate the kind of thing that love often does rather than the exact thing that love always does. Verse 35, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. We might be a little confused when we read that. Does that mean you must first become a person who loves his enemies before you can be a child of God? Well, that hardly makes sense. It's better understood as meaning you should love your enemies and so prove yourself to be what you are, a child of God. That is, show that you are a child of God by acting the way your father acts. If you are his, then his character is in you, and you will be inclined to do what he does. Yes, our reward in heaven will be great. Never forget that. But also never forget that following Jesus is the most rewarding way to live this life. I've always loved the way Dallas Willard stated this by describing the cost of non-discipleship. The cost of non-discipleship is far greater, even when this life alone is considered, than the price paid to walk with Jesus, constantly learning from him. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. That brings us to our second section of the passage, verses 37 through 42. Do not judge. Judging and condemning go together here. When Jesus uses the word judge, he means to weigh the evidence and find someone guilty and to cut them off from the possibility of God's favor. He's talking about judging harshly, self-righteously, without mercy, without love, while ignoring one's own sin. King David in the Old Testament is a prime example of this. Remember how when confronted with the story of a man who stole a neighbor's lamb, David indignantly called for prosecution of the criminal, ignoring the fact that he was guilty of the much greater crime of murdering his wife's previous husband. 
The Apostle Paul also speaks of this kind of hypocritical judging in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? But how is this command cited these days in casual conversation? The Bible says you can't judge me. Or Jesus said you shouldn't criticize people. I've heard these statements from Christians and non-Christians. You don't need to let statements like these control the conversation. You could respond with questions like these, but don't do it in a snarky way. Do you believe that means we should dismantle our legal system? Do you think that competitions with judges such as American Idol, The Voice, and America's Got Talent violate the Bible? If you're a football fan, do you think the Bible is saying we need to get rid of line judges, field judges, back judges, or for that matter, all athletic competitions that involve judging? And by the way, Jesus warned not to throw what is holy to the dogs or cast pearls before pigs. So he was obviously telling us to judge some people as dogs or pigs, correct? So might it be possible that he meant something different when he said, do not judge? The bottom line is that Jesus is not prohibiting careful discernment. He is speaking against a superior and self-righteous attitude, not against careful evaluation. In verses 36 through 38, Jesus is expanding on the principle of sowing and reaping. Remember that verse in Galatians that says, whatever you sow, you will reap? There, the meaning is that if you invest now in eternal things, you will reap eternal life. Here, though, Jesus seems to be talking in a more proverbial way about how life will go if you allow your heart to be changed by his teaching. Why do I say that? If you try to understand these verses in a salvation sense, you'd end up with a works-based salvation, with your fate depending on how well you did at mercy, not, not judging, forgiving, or being generous. So that's one way of understanding these verses. Uh, in other words, consequences in this life for the way you treat people. Jesus is describing a certain kind of person, in other words. But here's another insight about forgiveness that's helpful for me. Jesus says, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Does that make you nervous? Aren't we freely and fully forgiven in him? We can resolve this by understanding two different kinds of forgiveness, judicial and parental forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is that which is granted by God the judge to everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is unconditional. Parental forgiveness is that which is granted by God the Father to his erring child when he confesses and forsakes his sin. It results in the restoration of fellowship in the family of God and has nothing to do with the penalty of sin. As father, God cannot forgive us when we are unwilling to forgive each other. He doesn't act that way and cannot walk in fellowship with those who do. It is parental forgiveness that Jesus refers to in the words, and you will be forgiven. If you have kids, think about how an unresolved conflict between them keeps you from enjoying a happy relationship with them. One more word about these verses. Our cultural distance from Jesus in his day causes us to want to see the teachings of Jesus like these, either one way or the other. 
either as a proverbial reap what you sow principle or as eternal rewards principles having nothing to do with this life. It's okay to see both, being careful not to neglect the theological for the practical or the practical for the theological. Verse 39 presents a humorous picture of one visually impaired person confidently leading another visually impaired person straight into a pit. This seems to be connected to another eye-related word picture Jesus draws a few moments later. In verse 40, Jesus points out the basic principle of all discipleship, that a fully trained disciple will be like his teacher. This was true of the Pharisees' disciples, and it's true of Jesus' disciples. You learn by hearing, observing, practicing, and imitating. This parable is a warning about following the wrong person. Spiritually blind leaders mislead disciples. Becky and I have shared our story with some of you about following a pastor for 14 years who initially impressed us with his teaching, but who didn't deal with his own sins. Part of our recovery from that experience was coming to terms with negative ways that we had become like him. And years later, at his sex abuse trials, we could see how his remaining followers have become even more like him in taking on the negative character traits that he was never willing to deal with. And by the way, we have been hated defectors, that's their term for it, ever since leaving that church. And we have the constant challenge ourselves to love those who hate us. In verse 42, Jesus paints another colorful picture. Take the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in someone else's eye. This problem of judging and condemning is a massive problem in today's online cancel culture. It is so easy to jump on the moral outrage bandwagon over the most popular sin of the moment, whether it's sexual abuse or racism or financial corruption or electronic surveillance or political schemes. As long as we remain preoccupied with the horrible things those people are doing, we will not be doing the work of daily believing, repenting, obeying, and loving that Jesus calls us to do as his disciples. As we conclude, let me ask you, do you want to see confirmation that you are a son or daughter of the Most High God? How could you aspire to anything higher than that? Jesus says in verse 35, Love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, before I leave you with some final admonitions, I want to acknowledge that while some of us receive these commands of Jesus with joy, for others, they bring heavy reminders of exhausting efforts to live the Christian life by our own efforts. It's like Homer Simpson consoling his children. Kids, you tried your best and failed miserably. The lesson is, don't try. Jesus did call us to things that seemed totally beyond our capacity. But he also promised that his burden was light, and he criticized the Jewish leaders for loading people down with heavy burdens. The Apostle John wrote that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In Isaiah's prophetic description of Jesus, he said that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench.
If we truly see and appreciate our enemy-loving Savior and our merciful Father, we find delight in doing His will, as Psalm 40, verse 8 says. So I'd like to leave you with four admonitions. Number one, let's seek to be like Jesus, the ultimate example of enemy love. Two, let's be like our Father, who is merciful to the ungrateful and the evil. Three, let's do this because we have nothing of real value to lose and a reward both here and in heaven to gain. And finally, let's do this not by trying to follow rules, but by training, letting Jesus reshape our minds and hearts through his word and his spirit day by day. Remember, every disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. I'd like us just to take a minute now to reflect on the message and what your next step of obedience to Jesus might be. Let's take a moment. Lord, thank you for this amazing, liberating, upside-down teaching of Jesus. Thank you for showing us that when we submit to King Jesus, we actually are freed up to love our enemies, to bless our haters, to forgive, to be generous and non-judgmental. Help us to joyfully walk in this way in the coming week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number six. 24 through 26 is a benediction for you today, but it's also a deliberate thought process you can adopt in learning to love your enemies. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a good week.